don't know me, my name's Jeff, part of the preaching team here at C3, and we're in the middle of um, a fantastic series called Dave, and we're focusing on the uh, incredible Old Testament character of David, probably the most loved character in the whole of the Old Testament, okay? He's a fantastic character. He seems to have everything, okay? There's lots of other great Old Testament characters, great heroes of faith, but none of them, I think, are quite up there with David. You've got Abraham, fantastic leader, father of the whole nation. Um, you know, Abraham, amazing guy. He, he did try to kill his son at one point. That kind of has to go in the negative column for, for Abraham. You know, David, um, not so much. Joseph, okay, he's another very popular Old Testament character. He was a bit of an idiot when he was growing up, that's fair to say, okay, but he sorted out later. Okay, whereas David, strong at the beginning, very good um, kind of young person growing up, giant killing all that stuff. Uh, Moses, another great leader, leads the people of Israel out of Egypt. Not so much of the action figure as David. You know, David has the complete package. He's the leader, he's the king, he's the warrior, he's got it all. Okay, and of course, which person um, does more of the Old Testament concern than anybody else? Which person? Thank you, Jesus. Not David. Didn't none of you concentrate in Sunday school? Yeah. So it's all about Jesus. The whole of the Old Testament is about Jesus. But that said, the next character who is most significant in the whole of the Old Testament is David. Okay? All the way through the book of Samuel, all the way through Kings and Chronicles and their kind of respective sequels. Um, you know, this story of David unfolds and then his, um, kind of his children beyond him. And um, be, as well as all that, he was an ancestor of Jesus. So his significance kind of flows into the New Testament as well. So an incredible character that we're looking in through this whole series. Um, and we're going to this morning zoom in on David's life around uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5. If you didn't get any notes when you came in, uh, just put your hand up and someone from the Connect team uh, will come and deliver those to you. Um, but it says this. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said... We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all of Israel and Judah for 33 years. So, this amazing character becomes king by the age of 30. An amazing achievement to accomplish so much, and he's already accomplished a whole load. You know, he's already killed Goliath. He's already routed the Philistines. He becomes king by the age of 30. An amazing um, accomplishment. And of course, um, in recent weeks in France, we've seen Emmanuel Macron become the French president, okay? And much has been made of this election, and particularly the fact, the kind of, um, his youthfulness at the age of 39, okay? And much has been said about this, that by the age of 39, he has formed his own political party um, called En Marche, and he is then, that party has become successful so that he can become the president of France. So that's an amazing achievement by the age of 39. It does somewhat leave those of us of very similar age feeling a little bit, well, you know, okay, all right, we get it. You know, I mean, 
I've not started my own political party, and I'm not now the president of France, but if I'd wanted to, there's no saying I couldn't have done, okay? You know, I, you know, I'm not, you know I've, d I've done other things. You know, he, he might have been off doing that. So, but David, even more so than him, 30 years old, the king of all Israel. And if you look at David at this point, you think life couldn't be better for David. Okay, he's a great king, he's a great warrior, okay? He's already by this point got two wives, so everything seems to be going David's way, okay? But, though the people love him, though everything is going brilliantly, actually, there is this huge episode leading up to him becoming king where it's really tough for David. And that's what we're looking at today, those kind of intervening years. David, the fugitive. David, the outlaw. David, the hunted one. Um, and it's an incredibly dramatic episode in David's life. You know, it, I would say it would make a great film. It has made many great films, okay? But actually, a film can't really contain all of it. You need a whole multi-season Netflix event, or, you know, there are other streaming services, obviously, do exist. Um, but, you know, it, it feels like it should be one of these multi-season kind of things. And in that kind of, um, in that vein, I'm going to do a very quick kind of overview of, you know, last season on, you know, on David the Fugitive. So I'm going to take us through very quickly through these events. So we're going to start with David defeating Goliath, because we pretty much know the story up to there fairly well, uh, most of us. So David, by the point that he fights the giant Goliath, he has already been anointed to be the next king. So he's already anointed to be the next king of Israel. He goes, he fights Goliath, kills Goliath, then routes the Philistines. And the people absolutely love David. They are singing about how wonderful he is. They're saying, Saul has killed thousands, but David has killed tens of thousands. So David is riding high. And in this moment, he starts working for Saul. Um, and Saul becomes jealous of David and throws a spear at him and tries to kill him. So this is when things start to go less well for David. Now, as a side note, I would just like to say this. I always feel... Saul gets a bit of a hard kind of run of things in this kind of passage of the story. I mean, if we were looking at it through the lens of modern employment practices, I think Saul gets quite shoddy treatment. Let me put it like this. If you can imagine that you've got the CEO, so in this case you've got God, the CEO, you've got Saul, managing director. So the CEO says to the managing director, just so you know, I've already appointed your replacement. Hope you're okay with that. He's a great guy. Everyone loves him. He's amazing. Yeah. Oh, just to help him, is it all right if he comes and works with you? Gets a bit of work experience, yeah? He's, he'll be great. So he can come and work for you whilst he's kind of getting ready to become the king when we get rid of you. Is that, is that all right with you? I'm sure that's absolutely fine. And by the way, this is an extra bonus. He's a really good musician. He's a great harp player. So if ever you're feeling kind of stressed or angry or anything like that, then, you know, he can come and play the harp for you and it'll calm you down. And so it's like, yeah, of course I'm feeling stressed and angry. You've just bought my replacement and you've told me he's going to replace me. He's already anointed to replace me. And then he's come to work for me. Of course that's a stressful situation. I could have very happily avoided. So, you know, I think many of us in that same situation may have felt compelled to throw a spear at David. Who knows? Maybe. Anyway, so that's Saul. So he throws his spear. David uh, fortunately dodges. If David didn't dodge, it would be a much shorter sermon. Um, but he doesn't. And Saul feels a little bit bad about the fact that he threw the spear in that whole business. He thought, well, we do have to get along. We're sharing the same office. So he says to David, okay, why don't you marry my daughter, Michal? Okay, um, why don't you marry my daughter, which is a nice gesture, except for the fact it's a little bit awkward because David 
doesn't really have sufficient funds to pay for a sufficiently expensive, and present, um, expensive present for his father-in-law to be. So Saul says, don't worry about it, I don't need an expensive present. Instead of an expensive present, why don't you just give me a hundred Philistine foreskins? And David's like, excuse me, can we get, what, what was that? Yeah. Just a hundred Philistine foreskins, that's all we need. Be a lovely present. <laughs> now, I'm not a medical man, but I'm pretty confident in saying that it's going to be far easier to remove a Philistine's foreskin if the Philistine is already dead. That's just <laughs> what limited medical knowledge I have would tell me that. So what Saul is really asking David here, he's setting him a challenge to go on a killing rampage um, against the Philistines and very much hoping that actually David will get killed in the process. Um, but David didn't get killed in the process. In fact, he didn't end up just getting 100, but 200 Philistine foreskins. It's almost like the original buy one, get one free offer. So David comes back to King Saul and says, here is your lovely present. And then King Saul is like, oh, right, what, what, what am I going to do with this? Why, why didn't I just ask you know, for a, you know, a nice you know, bottle of scotch or a you know, box of cigars? You know, what, what, what am I to do with this? So still, the relationship between the two of them still isn't great. Okay? Saul is not loving his new son. So again, he throws a spear at him. Um, and again, David dodges. Um, and then Saul, to kind of try and finish it off, sends a whole load of soldiers to David's house. Now, David is at this point married to Michal, who's Saul's daughter, and she helps him escape. And Jonathan, who's Saul's son, also helps him escape. So you've got Saul's children helping David to escape from their father. So David is helped to escape, um, and he runs to the priest called Ablamech. Um, and Ablamech is a bit shocked to see him in there and says he can't really help um, he says he doesn't really have any weapons. The only weapon we've got is this, you know, this sword that Goliath used to use. And David goes, thank you very much, I'll have that. So then Saul is, uh, sorry, David is going around with this presumably massive sword um, to kind of uh, use. And off he goes to King um, Akish. Now when he's with King Akish, uh, King Akish looks after him for a bit, but then gets worried. And David gets worried that King Akish might equally be a little bit jealous of David. So David then pretends to be mad and goes around kind of raving like um, a madman to try and fool this king, and then eventually ends up running away, hiding in a cave. Saul is hot on his heels, and he comes and discovers that Ablamech, the priest, has helped David, um, so he kills him. And just to kind of underline the point that this is not acceptable behavior, he also slaughters 85 priests and their families. So this huge massacre takes place as punishment for Ablamech giving shelter to David. Then David and his men go to the defense of a town, uh, Keilah, against the Philistines. Um, Saul sends an army not to attack the Philistines, but to attack David, who is attacking the Philistines. So it seems all very counterproductive. David flees to the wilderness, spends some more time there, and then decides that he'd be better off and safer if he goes and lives with the Philistines. So um, we're going to come back to that a bit later, but that's quite an odd thing for David to do, given his history um, with the Philistines. Eventually, skipping forward a bit, Saul is killed in battle, and David becomes king of Judah initially, and then after a few more years of difficulties and struggle, becomes king over all Israel. So it's a huge amount to accomplish by the tender age that David reaches the throne. And today I want to look at that, that difficult kind of window in David's life, and look at some of his experiences as David the fugitive. So these are in your notes, there's four points we're going to touch on uh, briefly. So the first point is this, and I think you'll agree after all that, is something of an understatement. 
David experienced tough times. You know, sometimes you can look at someone who seemingly has everything. They seem to have everything lined up in their, their work life, in their relationship life, in their family life, in their spiritual life. Everything can seem to go well for them, and it's very easy to be jealous of people in that circumstance. But the truth is we don't know what is going on in people's lives. We don't know what they had to do to get there, what events have shaped their life, and things that they have gone through that might have been very difficult. We must look to guard against jealousy in our lives when looking at other people. And one of the things I think we see here in David is, yes, he gets to being king, but a hugely difficult and tough period he must go through in order to do that. And David is admirable in the way that he deals with those tough times. We often talk about the fact that tough times can help to develop character. You know, it can be character forming, character building. But actually, I believe also that tough times very much reveal character. They can form character, but actually they reveal the character that is already there. We can learn a huge amount about ourselves in tough times. And when we're talking about tough times, obviously there's a whole realm of different things that could be included in that. Obviously, many people's tough times are associated with health, either physical health or mental health, or indeed caring for somebody else who has health problems. Um, huge amount of people experience, obviously, relationship breakups and things like that that can be incredibly difficult to go through for all concerned, or huge work pressures and challenges at work that really the stress of those can be very, very difficult for people to deal with, or the loss of work, or the inability to get work, or the right work, or different relationships at work. Um, loss and bereavement is another area that can really give people such a difficult chapter or moment in their lives. And sometimes these things can be brief and fleeting, and sometimes these things can go on for long extended periods and we cannot see the end. So many of us will have experienced some or many of those things, but obviously some of us will have experienced them to much greater degree than others. Some will have had really very, very difficult circumstances to work through. But I believe in those circumstances, you know, we can learn a huge amount about ourselves. It reveals something about who we are. You know, if when we're stressed and under pressure at work, we become an unpleasant person, that should provoke us to ask questions about ourselves. You know, if we're very, you know, if we're a lovely person, everyone likes us, but then in those moments we become impatient, we become easily angered, we become bitter, we become ungracious and jealous towards other people, then actually that reveals something that is kind of perhaps in our character but covered up at other points. You know, it's relatively easy to be a nice person when everything in life is going well. But actually, when we look at David in the midst of these very tough times, we see a character that is really God-focused and God-centered. You know, three times in that whole um, kind of sequence of events, David has a prime opportunity to kill King Saul. There's two occasions when he's in a cave um, hiding, and Saul comes into the cave, and Saul doesn't know David's in there. And while Saul is busy in the cave, David sneaks up behind him, he takes a knife and he cuts something off his tunic. And later on he shows me, he says, look, I, I, I cut this off your coat. I was so close to you, you didn't know I was there. I was in the darkness. I had a knife. I could very easily have killed you, but I didn't. And David shows Saul to this, hoping that Saul will recognize that David is not against him and Saul will uh, repent, which he does and says that he will kind of change the way that he's going to be. But Saul's promises to change don't last, and he continues to pursue David. And yet, time after time, David spares his life. David tries to reconcile. And even when it seems increasingly 
impossible that David and Saul are ever going to be reconciled. David still tries to, to act in a righteous way towards Saul. When I was thinking, it, I was interested in the kind of parallel with the story of Macbeth, if you know your Shakespeare. Macbeth is probably my favorite Shakespeare play. And at the beginning of Macbeth, um, the, the character Macbeth is given a prophecy saying that he will be the king. So very similar to David, he's got this kind of prophecy hanging over his life, he will be the king. Um, but Macbeth then begins to think, well, how can I facilitate becoming king quicker? What can I do to kind of get to the, the point where I'm king as soon as possible? And rather than saying, I'm going to sit back and let events take their course, and if I am to be king and that's what's going to happen, then so be it. Um, he ends up conspiring with his wife to kill the king so he, he can take over as king all the sooner. And David must have been tempted to do the same when he had those opportunities to kill Saul. And many would have said he was justified in doing that because Saul was trying to kill him. He could have said it's a, it's a case of kill or be killed. And wider than that, we've demonstrated through the passage where he massacres the priests that t Saul was a tyrant, okay? A terrible king, a terrible leader for the people of Israel. And David could have justified it in all sorts of ways, but he doesn't. He tries to act righteously towards the king. And in fact, when he hears the news that Saul has died and fallen in battle, he mourns. It says this in 2 Samuel chapter 1. Then David and all the men who took, um, um, and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan, and for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. There's a particularly unfortunate episode where the messenger who tells David that Saul is dead, he kind of comes, I think, thinking he's got some good news here. You know, Saul is dead, you're going to be the next king, it's all going to be great, okay? And when David hears it, he mourns, and because of the, the, the soldier's attitude, and I think the soldier had actually helped Saul to die, which I think back then was the custom on the battlefield. If people were dying already, you know, people did help them um, to die quickly. And the messenger says he does that, thinking this is going to help him kind of get in with the new king and the new regime. And David says he has to be killed because he has killed the king's anointed. So strongly does David feel that the position and the role of king ought to be honoured. And you see, he didn't see Saul's wrong behaviour and Saul's wrong actions as a, as a justification for his own wrong behaviour. Saul was the Lord's anointed king. And this was a position that David knew that one day he would inherit it. So he treated that position with respect. He treated Saul with the respect and deference that that position demanded, even though Saul's character and Saul's actions didn't demand that respect. So my question, as we reflect back on tough times that we've been through, is how can we see we've responded to those events? How have we responded to those people close to us and around us and on our side, you know, close family and friends. And maybe in certain situations, how have you responded to those people who we feel are pitted against us? Have we tried to do everything we can to act righteously in those situations? How have we responded to God? So there are questions we can consider um, about the tough times we've experienced. The second point I want to make is this. Um, David experienced isolation. A lot of isolation um, as part of this period of his life as a fugitive. When he goes to visit Ablimech the priest, it says, Ablimech trembled when he met David and asked him, why are you alone? Why is no one 
with you. Because he knew of David, he knew David as this great warrior, this great leader, and then David comes to him alone. And this question of isolation and loneliness, many people would say, actually, this is, this is really a problem of our age, of our current age, isolation and loneliness. And I think it very much is, but probably in truth, it's always been a problem of different ages and different ways. But certainly many people will identify with that sense of isolation and loneliness. Um, you know, we are more connected than ever before. You know, the kids I teach, I'm a secondary school teacher, the, the kids I teach are connected to so many people through social media, you know, hundreds of friends on Facebook and, you know, all, you know, all those kind of things. But actually, sadly, the, the, the isolation and loneliness isn't defined by how many people we know or how many people we're connected with. And perhaps the, the, the challenge of our age is the statistics can be very impressive. We can have this many friends or this many contacts or this many likes or this many subscribers or whatever, but the reality of what those relationships mean and whether those people know us and are there for us is sadly lacking in many cases. And it, we have to say this, it's many different people experience loneliness. Loneliness looks very different for different people. You know, people can experience loneliness even though they have lots of friends. You can have lots of friends, a busy social life, but still experience loneliness. People can be in a good marriage and have a happy family and be part of a great church and have a meaningful relationship with God. They can have all those things in place and yet still experience that deep sense of being alone or no one really knowing them or no one really being there for them. The, you know, the question is often when I need someone to talk to who gets me or when I need advice or I, I need practical help or just someone to be with, you know, when I need someone, is there someone there? And if in certain occasions or certain moments we find the answer is no, it can leave us feeling totally alone. Um, and this must have been particularly difficult for David. He came from a large family. We hear early on in his story all about his brothers. Um, and he'd been this huge success. He'd been the person that everybody knew, that everybody wanted to know. Um, and he's greatly admired. And now he was totally alone. And of course, David had already and always spent time alone. As a shepherd boy growing up, he would have spent huge amounts of time being by himself. But that kind of alone time is very different. You know, if you're part of a big family, and you're part of, you know, and you've got all those connections, actually sometimes stepping back from that and getting time just by yourself or time, you know, with just you and God can actually be a real blessing and a really nice thing to retreat into. But that's very different from being alone where you feel you don't have any of those supports, you don't have any of those people around you, and that is just how you are. So um, we find David very isolated, but an interesting thing happens um, when we look at what happens to David. And over time, we see that other people who are also alone, who are isolated and who are dispossessed, begin to join with David. This is what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 22. All of those who were in distress or in debt, or discontented, gathered around him, and he became their commander, their leader. About 400 men were with him. And this amazing thing happens that David finds himself alone, and then begins to draw others around him. And I think one challenge that we often have is that when we feel isolated, when we feel lonely, which you know, most of us probably can relate to at one time or other, we become very aware of our need for those relationships. And this can almost become a vicious circle. We can feel that need for, for deeper connection and deeper relationships so strongly that it means that we can become too demanding of other people. 
And actually those relationships that we're trying to forge more significantly, we can end up pushing people away. You know, we probably all know people or have come across people who if we were being uncharitable, we said they might be called needy people, people that seem to demand so much of us, much more than we're able to give at one time or another. And although we might feel that we want to help those people and do something to, to be there for them, it can make it very difficult in those situations to forge a meaningful two-way reciprocal friendship because it feels like the, the traffic is all one way. And I think David's response to loneliness is interesting. It wasn't to focus on his own needs, his own needs for relationship and connection, but instead he looks to meet the needs of others. And as he does that, these people are drawn to him. He sees other people whose lives he can pour something into. He can give them something back. Those who are lonely, those who, he, can, he can be what he's looking for himself to them. And as he does that, as he reaches out and pours himself into those people and they, they come to rely on him and they came to look at, to him as their leader, perhaps in that relationship or in those relationships, his own sense of aloneness is met. You know, perhaps when we feel lonely, it's a, part of it is a prompt for us to ask ourselves, is there more I could be doing to help other people? Are there other people's lives that I could pour myself into selflessly, but actually in the, in the process of doing that, perhaps my needs might be met as well. You know, um, many people in churches connect with people through connect groups and small groups and friendship groups, and those can be really meaningful relationships. But some people, they have found their closest friends in church through working on a team alongside them. That actually, you know, getting alongside and working on the AV team or in the kids team or in whatever team they're involved in, that kind of relationship forges a much deeper and significant friendship for them as they pour themselves out into other people's lives. Okay, the third point has some links with the second point, but I wanted to make it as a distinct um, kind of statement, really, and this is this, that David experienced life on the outside. You know, this is perhaps in many ways a good definition of what it is to be a fugitive. And there are many stories, many great stories about fugitives. You know, there's the fantastic film, The Fugitive, um, with Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones. Anyone seen that? Yeah. Going back a bit, but fantastic film. And of course, there's Victor Hugo's epic novel, Les Miserables, that centers on this fugitive figure in the center of it, Jean Valjean. I think it would make an amazing musical. Um, <laughs> so you've got this, you know, for those of you who, who haven't read the book, um, you've got Jean Valjean. He, he steals some bread to help um, someone, I think his sister or something. He gets caught. He gets put on a chain gang for five years. Then it's extended to 20 years because he tries to run away. Then at the end of his time, he has to break his parole to survive. And then there's this inspector, Inspector Javert, who for the rest of his life, for the next 20 years, 30 years, pursues him relentlessly. Clearly, there were not many crimes going on in 18th century France because this Inspector Javert is able to dedicate himself to this cold case so unflinchingly. Um, he's obviously a complete finisher. But this is, you know, you, you've got these, these kind of characters all the way through fiction. And there's many other parallels. You know, in both those stories, in the Harrison Ford film, in um, Les Miserables, you know, the person who is the hunted gets the opportunity, like David did, to finish the one that's hunting them. You know, um, I get these names mixed up. Valjean gets the chance to kill Javert, um, and he doesn't. He lets him go free. Um, so we see all these parallels, but this sense of being on the outside, a fugitive kind of running, and it's different from loneliness because it talks about someone who is on the outside of or isolated from 
or maybe even in opposition to the power structures in society or the prevalent thought in society. And David very much finds himself on the outside. Saul is the king. And this isn't a democracy where Saul has some power and there's a kind of parliament here and a government here. Saul has all power. All power is his. There is no legal framework that offers any kind of safeguard for when Saul sends, for example, an army to go and kill David. There's no one there going, "Um, actually, technically, you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to send your army to go and kill one person just because you don't get on with them, yeah? Red tape gone mad, I know. You know, no one's able to do that. If Saul says it, it's done. And Saul wants David dead. He's explicit about the fact. He doesn't need to be covert about it. And he's using the power of the state to try and bring this about. David could not be more on the outside. As I said earlier, it gets to the extent that he goes to live with the Philistines. This is what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 27. David thought to himself... One of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul was giving, well, then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel and I will slip out of his hand. This is the Philistines and he was the one, David, who they knew had killed Goliath. He was the one who had routed their army. He is the one that had provided an unusual wedding present based on their manfolk. So there, you know, there is going to be a huge amount of ongoing resentment against David, and yet he feels safer, he feels more part of their society than he does of his own. How outside must David have felt? And it prompted me to ask this question. Who is on the outside in our society? As we think about the United Kingdom at this point, who is on the outside? Now, some people might say, well, increasingly, I think Christians are. I think increasingly, you know, particularly evangelical Christians, you know, we feel like we're on the outside. We feel like the, the, the way that society views things or looks at things or the direction of certain things feels increasingly limiting of our freedoms. That actually elements of the media or other things can be increasingly tolerant of people that hold, certain, to, hold to certain kind of Christian beliefs and practices. And this may... I think very possibly be true, and I'm sure there's all manner of evidences of this. But as I was thinking about this question, I felt that, you know, if our first answer to the question, who is on the outside in our society, if our first answer to that question is ourselves, then I feel we're missing something quite important. In many ways, Jesus was a man on the outside. He was an outlaw. When Isaiah is writing prophetically about Jesus, He puts it like this, puts it so well. He says, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem, an outlaw, a fugitive. And yet, when Jesus is looking to defend those who are outcast from society, he never defends himself. He always starts and ends by defending others. He defends the widows. He defends the sinners, the tax collectors, the poor, the sick, the Samaritans. He defends those who, know, who don't seem to have a voice for themselves. And I believe that if we want the church, which we do, to be an increasingly relevant and an increasingly positive force in our society, you know, the answer to this isn't to increasingly speak up in defense of our own rights, to loudly shout about our position and status. I believe it is to increasingly 
be a voice for those who have no voice, to have a voice in our society who are truly on the outside. And as we do that, we are being like Jesus. And the church is representing him in our society. There are so many people in our society who have little or no voice. You know, I thought it was fantastic that uh, about a year ago when the refugee crisis was at, was at its height or its people's awareness of it was at its height, the, the church was very vocal in speaking in support of that. And that's exactly what the church should be doing. And there are so many other issues and people and groups like that. You know, the homeless, the poor, victims of sex trafficking, those whose lives are controlled by different addictions, those who are crippled by debt, those who've suffered abuse. The more the church can do to speak up for those people and to be a loud voice, helping to bring and include them into society, the more positive, the more relevant we will be than ever before. Let our voice be heard in defense and support of these people and let their rights be recognized and heard before our own. My, first, my fourth and final point is this. David, I think, during this whole period, experienced great emotional turmoil. You know, when we go through tough times, there is obviously the, the substantial physical element to our suffering or the substantive element, you know, but there is often that accompanies that an emotional element as well that is equally difficult to deal with, sometimes more difficult to deal with. David was homeless, perhaps he was cold, hungry, in fear for his life, so he had these very real practical physical needs. But in addition to those challenges, he must have been dealing with, you know, these inevitable questions which perhaps wouldn't go away. Why me? Why do I have to suffer? How much longer will this go on? And then questions that were directed towards God. What happened to your plans for me? Why can't you intervene to help me? Are you even there? Do you even hear me? And those questions can be such a difficult thing to wrestle with alongside everything else we're wrestling with. How do we know that David asked these questions time and time again? Well, because we find them throughout the Psalms. I'm just going to read you a selection of verses here from Psalm 22. And it starts with a very famous verse. It starts with this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. So it is a, a psalm of desperation, crying out to God. Most famous because the opening lines, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, are cried out by Jesus as he dies on the cross. And actually there are many other elements in that, in that psalm that point towards Jesus' crucifixion. He talks about you know, his hands and feet being pierced. He talks about people dividing his clothing. People saying, if God, if you are God's son, why not come down? So 
this psalm very strongly points towards Jesus. But actually, first and foremost, David didn't write this to point forward to Jesus. He wrote this as a true reflection of his emotional turmoil as he was fleeing from Saul for his life. And sometimes when we go through tough times and we think such things as this and have these questions, we can even feel guilty for asking them. But we needn't feel guilty. This is what faith is. Faith is not about saying the right things and just hoping that one day they will feel like the right things. Faith is all about being honest with God. You know, God wasn't shaken by David's honesty in this psalm. And there are many psalms like this. This isn't an isolated example. And God is not shaken by our honesty either. But the key, I believe, is this. The key is in our toughest times, coming to God and coming closer towards him rather than being driven away. Let's just let the band come up as we finish off. The truth is that sometimes the tough times and the tough questions and the difficult answers that don't seem to come can push us further and further away from God. But actually, the place we need to be is pushed closer towards God. That in the midst of our difficulties, that God can be there for us. So often you see psalms like this, where David starts out crying out, God, where are you? What's going on? Why am I all alone? But by the end, he has found God. He says, you are my hope. You are my refuge. You are my salvation. You are the light. And David, as he comes to God and is honest to God, feels his heart changing, feels his heart beginning to heal as he stretches out and reaches out to God. As I said at the beginning there, all of us must have experienced some tough times in our lives. Some people may very much be in the midst of difficulty in a very dark chapter of their lives. For some it may be something fleeting, for some it may be a long and extended date. I just want to pray for us this morning that in the midst of whatever we're going through, that we will be able to hold on to God. That actually in the times when it's darkest, we need His light in our lives more than ever. That we don't need to be fault about how we feel. That we don't need to pretend before God because he knows our hearts. That he accepts our hearts. That his amazing grace is there to nurse our hearts, whatever state they are in. But that we need to bring our hearts and our lives before him in, in order for him to do a work in us. Can I just ask us to stand together? I'm just going to pray as we close. Father God, I thank you the example and the character of David. A man who seemingly had everything and yet we know must have gone through you know, such difficult circumstances in his life. Such dark periods. I pray for anyone here who is in the midst of difficulty, who is in the midst of suffering. And I pray that they would feel close to you. That that question about where are you, why have you forsaken me, that as they maybe cry that out, that they would feel the answer. Or even if they don't feel the answer immediately, that they will keep persevering with the question. Father God, we know that your, your love is for us. That you turn your face towards us. That you have a heart to see every one of us made whole. We pray that in the midst of our difficulties and our troubles, that you'd help us to look around to the world around us. That you'd help us to have those connections in our life that we so need. That we would have people who can be there for us, to advise us, to help us, or just to be there for us. I pray that even in the midst of difficult times, that we would be able to look out 
to the needs of others. That something would take us out of our own difficulty, not in any way to diminish our own difficulty, but just to take us out of it. And in that we may find some healing as well. Father God, I pray that you would help each and every one of us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Just as we stay standing, we're going to sing one final song together.